let me ask you something. What is the relationship between teaching and learning? Does teaching cause learning or is it more complicated? Of course, we want to educate medical trainees in the best way possible. But what is the purpose of education? Welcome to the podcast in which we question everything about medical education. Today, we discuss the second installment in our series on philosophy and medical education that appears in the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine. In the last episode, we discussed how philosophy can be valuable for medical education by asking fundamental questions about basic concepts that we use every day in our work and our research. In the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine, what could be more fundamental than to ask about teaching and learning in medicine? The title of the article we discussed today is Beyond the Medical Model, Thinking Differently About Medical Education and Medical Education Research by Gert Pista and Marije van Braak. You can read it on the journal website and I'll link it in the description. It's open access. So Marije and Gert write that in medical education, teaching is currently viewed as an intervention that causes learning. The task of medical education research is seen as establishing which educational interventions produce the desired learning outcomes. This medical model of education does not do justice to the dynamics of education. Well, what does that mean going beyond the medical model? To discuss this, let me introduce our guests and my co-host. Gert Bista is professor of public education at the Center of Public Education and Pedagogy at the Maynard University in Ireland and professorial fellow in educational theory and pedagogy at the Moray House School of Education of the University of Edinburgh. He also holds a position as professor of education at the University of Humanistic Studies in the Netherlands. So that's Ireland, Scotland and the Netherlands. And which one are you in right now, Gert? Um, we live in Scotland, so I'm just outside of Edinburgh at home right now. And can you tell us a little bit about how you developed your ideas around education? I've been interested in education from a very early age. So I used to play school when I was a child. And I know other children who have done that as well. Um, and I ended up in, in teaching at some point. Um, so I have been educating for a long time. Um, and then I encountered literature about education, research on education that didn't really make sense to me. It didn't speak to my own experiences. Uh, and I think out of that, I started to, to figure out how can we talk differently about education? How can we theorize it differently? So I have to say that I, I've benefited a lot from what I would say is really poor quality theorizing of, of education. And I've tried to develop alternatives that yeah, make more sense to me and to some other people as well. So that's mm. the, the short history behind it. I didn't know about your uh, philosophy of education very long. I probably should have known about it because you're highly influential in the Netherlands. But uh, fortunately, Marije van Braak fixed that. She introduced me to uh, the philosophy of Bista. And uh, Marije is an educational scientist and a PhD candidate at the Department of General Practice Training at Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. I know this actually firsthand because I'm a co-promoter in our project. But Marije is in Gouda now in the Netherlands, right? Yeah, sure. And if you've ever eaten Dutch Gouda cheese after this podcast, you'll be able to impress your friends with the correct pronunciation, right? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Mariah, what do you see as the main takeaway of your article for teachers? Um, well, I think that the main takeaway is that uh, teaching isn't so much related to learning uh, as we sometimes suppose in medical education, that teaching causes learning. Uh, so teaching is very much about creating opportunities for learning uh, without guaranteeing learning. And that has consequences for how you consider evidence. Uh, so evidence-based evidence education, for example, how do you go about evidence, research results? How do you apply them to your own practice? And also has consequences for how you design your uh, teaching and how you design your assessment. Uh, what about your curriculum? Uh, so all aspects of education, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say that you explained this to me a while ago and I really had to get used to the idea of that education is not so much about learning. And uh, I, I'm not sure I understand it, but I'm sure after this uh, podcast I will. So uh, let me introduce my co-host, Janet Riddle, who is a research assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she works as director of faculty development. Janet, thanks for being my co-host for this episode um, with all these uh, Dutch people. And if we accidentally switch to Dutch, then uh, please let us know. I, I would be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and can, can you tell me what your uh, interest in this article was and how it connects to your own practice uh, as an educator and faculty developer? Great. Thank you. Um, so just as a bit of background about me, I, I'm a general internist, a physician by training. Um, shortly after I finished my residency training program, I grew into a role as a faculty developer, and that is what I spend most of my time doing. And so um, you could consider me a teacher of teachers. And so this article speaks a great deal to me in that particular role. Now I am working in the Department of Medical Education, um, teaching and supervising graduate students. And so I see myself as a generalist educator. And of course, this article speaks also to that particular role about how we design and think about scholarly projects in health professions education. I've already tipped my hand to both of you is I'm going to be framing some of my questions from that perspective as a faculty developer. Because to me, that makes some sense in terms of how I think of specific examples of the application of your argument. Now, what I should tell you is the primary faculty development activity that I'm thinking of is a longitudinal program that I conduct. So every year I recruit uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 faculty members across multiple disciplines. The primary goal is that I have listed is that the participants will develop an awareness of themselves as teachers. We also um, introduce um, and allow them to practice a variety of instructional skills so that they can um, innovate in their teaching, or I'd like to think enhance their teaching effectiveness. Now, the final point that I should make is um, that within my department, we talk about health professions education because we have multi-professional groups rather than talking about medical education. So if I use that expression, it's really synonymous with what you have written as, as um, medical education. So, so with that introduction by, uh, about me, I'd like to start interviewing both of you about the article that you've written, which I found very interesting. Okay. Um, 
And so I'd, I'd like to consider some of the elements of the argument that you've made. And I just want to jump right in to the argument you're making about the purposes of education. So you wrote two things that were really interesting to me and caught my attention. One is that you wrote that the language of learning is not sufficiently precise as we currently use it, and that the question of purpose is the first question that needs to be addressed. Now, I'm going to list the domains or purposes of health professions education that you describe in the article. And if you feel like you need to define those a little bit, I'm going to let you do that. And these three domains are professional qualification, professional socialization, and professional subjectification. Now, I point out that we also use the language of competence, professional identity, and self-directed learning. And so, Herit, I want to start with asking you, why is the language that we are currently using not sufficiently precise? Probably the point to start with is the word learning, which is, is very easy to use and it's all over the place. And in English, there is this phrase, teaching and learning. I've even made a joke, it looks like that has become one word. But when people say that the, their ambition as teachers is to make their students learn, uh, and I also read an awful lot of papers that say we're looking at the impact of this on that on student learning, uh, I never know what it is about. Uh, and that's the, the point about not precise enough. Um, and a quick way to, to say that is to just look at a couple of examples of where we use the word learning like learning to ride a bike, learning that two and two equals four, learning to be patient, learning that you're not good at something. Now, if you take those four examples, they all meaningfully speak about learning, but they speak about very different experiences, processes, domains. Um, so that is, is partly what, what yeah, irritates me about this use of the word learning, uh, that Actually, as educators, when we say that, we are not precise enough of what we hope from our students. Even then, when you say, can we talk about competence and professional development and self-directed learning, there is the word learning again. So I would be curious again then to say, so what kind of, of learning? So there is that, that cluster that we may want to uh, come back to. Um, and you, you can't say the first question we always need to ask as educators is not should our students learn, but actually what is the learning about? And before that, what is the learning for? What do we expect from them? If you say learning is some kind of change, we need to figure out what kind of change we're after. Um, and there are these three words, qualification, socialization, subjectification come in as sort of an attempt in the general way to, to begin to give some profile to what we are after as educators, where you say part of what we're after is that our students become qualified, that they can do things, knowledge and skills, competence. Part of what we're after is that they sort of find their, their way in a particular field or a particular practice. I would call that socialization. So they learn about the history, about the values, about the rules, about the structures. Um, 
And then I think there is always the question, where does that leave each individual student in relation to all that? And that has something to do with this domain of subjectification. Um, I'm not saying that this will always cover everything, but it, it's a helpful way to begin to open up this whole question of learning in, in more educational terms. Great, thank you. Um, I oftentimes say in my faculty development work when, when um, the participants are struggling with this, um, why aren't my learners learning what I'm teaching? As I point out that learning happens. And it's not necessarily always uh, um, because of, sometimes it's in spite of us as teachers. Yeah, um, so you can say learning happens all the time on, on some definition that is true. Uh, we also learn all kinds of things we, we shouldn't learn. Uh, so we pick that up as well. What is odd is that in a sense, we never know in the moment whether we are learning or not. So none of us knows right now whether we will learn anything from this conversation. Maybe tonight or tomorrow or a year from now, something happens that we connect back. Um, so you can say to use the word learning can only happen after the event, not in the event itself. For me, that's another reason why I don't call my students learners because we can't decide that, and I, I never tell them that they should learn. I tell them that they should try or explore or work hard or focus. So there is, there is something more slippery about this work. Ah, that, that's really interesting, your, your observation that we can only know that we have learned um, after the fact. Mm. So that, that will give us something to ponder. Um, Mariah, I want to bring you into this conversation um, because I'm, I'm, as a faculty developer, I'm still really interested in um, the language or the vocabulary that I introduce and expect my faculty development participants to um, use in our conversations. And so I'm interested in your thoughts about the advantages or disadvantages of using this language of qualification, socialization, and subjectification as I am teaching the teachers. So do you mean you as a teacher or them as teachers being taught about teaching? The second. Okay. The second. Yeah. Um, I think um, like what you do in faculty development is trying to uh, stimulate development of teachers who are becoming teachers or teachers or whatever they, uh, however they consider themselves. Um, I think that the main advantage of using these three um, uh, terms, uh, socialization, qualification, and subjectification, is that it makes a, what you're doing as a faculty developer in the faculty development program more precise and more detailed. In a faculty development program, you try to uh, help teachers stimulate learning, which is how it's sometimes uh, called. Uh, th then what do you do in faculty development? If you use the terms um, uh, qualification, socialization, and subjectification, you can say, well, how can we contribute as teachers to qualification? How, we can, can, how can we contribute to socialization? How can we con contribute to subjectification? So I think it makes it more uh, precise because it also points with 
pointing to these three um, purposes, I think it also per, uh, points to um, the different roles that teachers have. Like for example, in uh, the context that I study, which is uh, general practitioners uh, uh, facilitating sessions where general practitioners in training um, reflect or discuss experiences from practice, they don't only, um, they aren't only teachers um, being experts, but they also are role models. They are um, like as, as expert members of a professional community, they're also role models. So it helps teachers to sort of realize these different aspects of, of learning. And, and this also helps them to realize uh, the different aspects of teaching, I would say. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And um, um, I would say these of these sound like three separate domains, but they are also integrated. So maybe it's not sort of a disadvantage, but uh, it's something to consider that these these domains need to be integrated too in the faculty development program. So there are not just three separate domains that can be addressed separately, uh, like in three parts of a, of a program, but they are related to. Well, we are going to, to get to that with a specific example that I'd like you to help me think about. Um, but before we get there, um, uh, so here's the concern that I have um, working with um, these teachers in development is that um, these ideas, these um, concepts of qualification, socialization, and subjectification are a very different vocabulary than they are hearing in the settings in which they work. Um, and I have a bit of a concern. I want to teach them the most valuable concepts. And yet I also want to be sure that those valuable concepts really connect with uh, the workplace that they uh, participate in as teachers and the vocabulary that they are hearing in that particular workplace. And, and um, I, I'm glad to see here that, that, that that's um, stimulating a reaction on your part. Yes, yeah. For me, this is a, a beautiful example because you say I want to, to give them the, the best language, but I also want them to want to give them a language that is that they encounter in the fields in which they work. So I would say that the first is your ambition is qualification to equip them with really good concepts. Mm -hmm. But then you acknowledge that these concepts are not very common because in, in the, the fields and the practices in which they work, there are very different concepts. So you also have a job to, to show that field and say, be aware, I think these are good concepts. But when you go back into the field, you'll hear very different concepts. So you can say that's where you do the socialization. And then it raises a question, what are your students going to do with that tension? Are they going to say lovely concepts that will adjust to what everyone talks about, although I now know it's, it's nonsense? Or I'm going to change the vocabulary of this field? You can say to, to encounter that question, that's the subjectification question, where they come in and, and need to figure out what I'm going to do here. So for me, it's a beautiful example of, of how you can use this. Ah, thank you. Yeah, thank these you. distinctions, actually. Yeah, yeah. Mariah, what's your I, thought about that? 
I, I, I haven't seen it that way, but I really like it. And it's, it's also in my, my experience, something that really um, resonates uh, with uh, other people too. So for example, I've uh, talked about these three concepts with uh, medical educate, uh, educators in my uh, environment. Um, and I think especially because uh, medical students or residents are really learning to be part uh, or trained to be part of a, some sort of profession. So that the, the distinction between qualification, but also socialization, becoming part of a profession, it, it does resonate with what they do as students and residents, except that it's not the educational terms that they use. So I think the ideas are sort of very uh, recognizable to, to many medical educators and also students, um, but they're just not used to using these terms uh, to describe what's happening when people teach and people participate in education. I really like your question, Janet, and where it's coming from, because uh, I think the experience of teachers is often that at every conference or with every article, uh, it introduces some new concepts like transformative learning or um, a performance or, or whatever. And I think these are really the kind of conversations that, that should happen more about, okay, but uh, I already have so many terms and concepts and ways of speaking about it. And is what is, is this article introducing in this case, is this uh, something really worth embracing because, or is it just another language for something uh, which I already know? What, what's your conclusion so far? Do you think you, you could use this in your own practice? Uh, I have already shared the ideas of this article with um, the person who I facilitate the faculty development program with. So uh, I suppose that already answers that question. Um, how yeah. we choose to um, expand on the vocabulary that we're using the vocabulary that we're modeling um, remains to be seen. But I've already put that idea out there. Oh, great. Nice. It also connects to what you said, that, that your ambition is, is for your students to develop an awareness of themselves as teachers. And, and awareness needs language. And with different language, you can become aware of, of different facets. So uh, for me, it, it it connects very closely. Well, thank you. And I, and I would say if any of your students speak German, um, <laughs> in, in German there, is, there are three words that are much more common uh -huh. in, in the, the German vocabulary than in English. So that's also behind it. That's other languages. Yeah, these distinctions are more everyday. There may be. I don't know that yet about this particular group. Okay, well, you can uh, I will... uh, impress them by yeah, talking about Ausbildung, Bildung, and Erziehung. Ah, Who knows? Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so um, I'd, like, I'd like to bring up um, something that I found really fascinating. Um, um, you write um, that these domains um, suggest a framework for the development of curricula, that is, the content experiences that um, our learners should encounter and work with during their professional education. And so you give several examples of these clinical experiences. I'll list a couple of them. So encountering the limits of medical treatment, 
the first unexplained patient, unexpected patient death, uncertainty in treatment decisions, and resistance to one's medical decisions by either patients or colleagues. And so I, I looked at this list as I was reading it, and I said, these sound like some of these really messy problems of professional practice that lack well-defined um, solutions. There's not one best answer to any of these situations. And so, Mariah, I want to start with your thoughts on this question. So why are these types of problems or experiences the preferred problems or experiences for development across these three domains of qualification, socialization, and subjectification? Well, I think they are they're sort of the, the, the example to show that uh, education isn't uh, straightforward. Education is messy. Teaching is messy and learning. Um, well, I'm not going to say anything about learning. Um, <laughs> and so I think these, these experiences really show how qualification, socialization, subjectification happen in practice. They're integrated in these types of complex, dynamic, messy, open situations, which we can't really um, describe in simplistic terms, but we really need to explore and, and try to understand. So I think these are the perfect examples to show how there is an interplay between qualification, uh, socialization, and uh, subjectification. So that's why they're there. So to to deal with those situations, you, you obviously need knowledge and skills, because that's the difference between someone who encounters those situations without any knowledge and the people who do. You also need your way around in the whole field. So you can say there are qualification and socialization. But what's interesting about these examples is that they do not perfectly fit the knowledge and skills you have. They do not perfectly fit all yeah, the way the field is organized and the way you know your way around. So you, you encounter a situation where, where you as an individual need to do something. Uh, and there you can say this dimension of subjectification comes in again. What are you going to do with all your knowledge, skills, your understanding of everything that's going on, knowing that this situation in some way is, is not the perfect fit with all that. So that's why we mentioned these examples, because they bring all this into play and actually puts the, yeah, the educated professional himself or herself at, at the heart of that situation. So, so we shouldn't be afraid of these, um, Mariah, as you've characterized them, complex, dynamic, messy, open problems. Um, we should use them strategically um, in our curricula. Yeah, sure. So I want to now move on to the second part of um, your argument um, in which you're considering the dynamics of teaching and learning. Both of you write that education is a system that is open, semiotic, and recursive. In order to make these concepts perhaps a little bit more concrete for um, some of our listeners and readers, um, I'd like to consider an example from my faculty development work. So one of the topics that we will talk about is teaching in small groups. And small, the small group settings that I'm thinking about 
could be problem-based learning. They could be aspects of team-based learning. They could be aspects of the reflection groups that you talked about, Mariah. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking for some insight on these types of small groups. To what extent are they open, semiotic, and recursive? Open, semiotic, and recursive, it, it sounds quite theoretical, but I think it, it's, it's quite easy or quite everyday. Um, open means that, that educational situations don't have very close boundaries. So I assume that when you work with your students, they are allowed to, to leave after the session. You don't keep them for 24 hours in a, in a room. So that's good news. Uh, that means they are open. So for that time, uh, you are in an interaction. But once they leave, they can go on the internet, read a newspaper, encounter other people. So there are all kinds of other influences surrounding. That makes education open. Semiotic means that we are not working with physical forces but with language. So you try to explain something, your students try to make sense of that, you give them exercises, you talk through things. That means that the, the dynamics are semiotic. And again, you can say, maybe as a teacher, you know perfectly what you want to say. That doesn't mean that that's also how your students understand. So a lot of the work is going back and forth and working on interpretations. And recursive, it's a, it's a technical term. It, it means uh, a system that feeds back into itself. But in practice in education, it means that our students are not just objects that we influence, but they are constantly thinking. So you say something, they think about it, they ask a question. So you have a process that constantly sort of loops back in, into itself. Um, and that you can say those three qualities make education a process that's quite difficult to control. And you can say that's the, the challenge to this idea of teaching courses learning. That's simply not how that situation works. Um, nonetheless, we do know that education works, that it does make a difference what we do. And when you begin to look at how do we try to make a difference as teachers, you can say, well, we do that partly by reducing openness. So we say, yeah, we're together in this room for the next four hours. And before that and after that, you're free. But for the four hours, let's work together. That begins to bring some focus into it. Assessment is a good example of, of testing understandings and saying, now give back to me how you have understood. We do that in the session or after the session. And then... We also try to make our students, in your case, think not in any way, to think as teachers, for example, or to think as, as medical professionals. That's sort of bringing focus in the recursivity. So for me, this is a much better way to understand what we're doing there and how that works than simply to say teaching is the intervention and learning is the outcome, and let's make that more effective. There was one point in my career when um, I loved to collect books that were um, had some part of their title being teaching tips. 
And I realized uh, after I'd bought more of those books than I have ever read that uh, there was something more to teaching than just applying a tip to a problem. And perhaps you have just described mm -hmm. that. So Mariah, help me, help me understand how I might work with my faculty, my teachers around this um, task or problem of small group teaching um, to make that educational system work in a more predictable way. So what advice do you have for me? I think uh, in some ways it's very um, straightforward reducing uh, what you're talking about, what the content is, um, how are we approaching uh, some subject, how are we, what are the perspective that we take. So it, it may sound quite complex, but in, in some ways it's very um, um, intuitive the way you 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 design your education you you always have something a topic that you want to talk about you always have some direction that you want your students um, um, something you want to achieve or to seek to achieve with your students um, so that's uh, one of the ways that you can do that um, and also I think uh, and that's more of a, a general um, educational principle maybe if you if you want to say so but um, whatever you do is directed at some aim that's what you learn as a teacher um, so there is no way you can't reduce the openness or there's no way you can't in, in my head it's more like um, we we are reducing this openness this this um, this complex system by what we do regardless of what we do as a teacher. Can I ask you the same same question in reverse, Mariah? Because uh, sometimes the problem is that it's uh, you want predictability. Sometimes the problem, as in uh, I know from your uh, study, you want to open things up. You want students mm -hmm. to reflect. So do you also have advice if, if you think it's too close and you want to open things up, how to do that in small groups? Um. Well, what I see teachers try is just say, you can discuss anything you want. That's not the way it works because people need some structure or need some uh, example subjects or example situations to talk about. I think it's very much about, um, maybe it's more like a, a, a meta process of teaching students to um, explore different aspects than they are used to think about, for example. So asking the right questions, um, um, triggering them to, to go down a path that they wouldn't go down when they uh, would be reflecting, if they are reflecting on their own. Um, so I think it, it might even be more difficult to open up instead of reduce the complexities. It's uh, yeah, an important point you make, Maria, to when you just say, well, do what you want to do, then then it's not education. No. So the real question is, if they're all looking to the left, how can you make them look to the right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's these little triggers as well. There's a beautiful phrase coming out of uh, complexity theory, which is partly behind this. It's the idea of enabling constraints. Um, so we, we tend to think constraints are limiting, but actually what we can do in teaching is put in some constraints, like saying, here's a problem, and within 60 minutes you need to have a solution. Well, then you create energy and focus. Um, so working with enabling constraints, sometimes to open up things or to say, 
I have no idea what the good answer here is. And, and what I did in a program I actually ran at the university uh, to open up things is to completely take out assessment. And that's wonderful uh, because uh, it showed how students and, and tutors have become addicted to assessment. And when you say to students, there is no assessment at the end. I'm not going to tell you whether what you've done is of a sufficient standard. On one hand, it creates disorientation. But then suddenly students begin to realize, wait, I'm not here to please the teacher. I'm here to, to figure out myself what I need to do here and define quality. I also have an example uh, of that, if I may, because um, I, I teach uh, third year uh, residents who are training to be general practitioners uh, about how to teach. And uh, they, uh, we do have an assessment, a portfolio, and it's very ill-defined what should be in this portfolio. And literally every session I teach, we get the question, so how do I show that I'm a good teacher? Or what should be in this portfolio? And we, just, we keep saying, well, it's your task to, do, to decide how you can show us that you uh, can do design, that you can do delivery, that you can do assessments. And so it's, it's really something that, yeah, it, it's very difficult to deal with. Um, also as teachers, I think, because as a teacher, I also think it's quite difficult uh, to uh, just leave it open and see what comes your way. I'd now like to turn to um, the broader argument um, that you're making about, um, maybe I'm overstating it, of um, that there isn't a causal relationship between teaching and learning. And, and I'm, I'm really interested in the vocabulary that we use, the terminology that we use as teachers or practitioners of health professions education with respect to research findings. Um, and, and so I ask this question, to what extent should we even be using the language of quote unquote evidence-based teaching practices? Um, well, there, there are a couple of arguments. Um, there is a beautiful paper by a colleague of mine here in Britain, uh, Andrew Davis. It, uh, and the title is, it worked there, will it work here? Um, and you can say that's the whole point. So all this research is, is fantastic because it always examines a very specific local situation with very specific conditions, and then something is possible. Well, that's great to know. Uh, but we shouldn't say that has proven that it will always work in all situations. That is the, the, the mistaken jump. Um, so that, that for me is, is the first argument, that it's always interesting to know what, what happened in particular situations, but it cannot be a, a guarantee that it will work in other situations. And once we begin to think that that's the case, and a lot of this research is, is solved with this promise, just do this because it has the, the highest effect size or the highest impact. That is, is I would say, selling a lie to thoughtful professional. Um, and some people then say, this is my, my, my second point, that the problem is this word based. So we shouldn't be used the word evidence based, but we should talk about evidence informed. And I then 
go back and say, no, the problem is the word evidence. Because in an awful lot of how the word evidence is being used, you find this idea of teaching as an intervention that causes some kind of outcome. And I think it, it's there that it already goes wrong. And whether you say you should base your practice on it or inform your practice about it, if you don't unpack what is in this evidence itself, what kind of idea of how education works, then the, the based and informed is actually an immaterial difference. So that's where I would start having this Thank conversation. You. Mariah, what's your perspective on our use of this phrase evidence-based um, or evidence-informed teaching practices? Well, I think it's very um, natural to use evidence in uh, in the medical context. Um, when I first uh, started working at the general practitioner department, I asked, uh, or one of my supervisors uh, asked, uh, what do you think is the most important word in medical uh, research? So <laughs> I didn't know, but he said, well, it's evidence. So um, uh, so for, for the medical research, for the medical research, um, uh, well, the way medical uh, evidence-based medicine is used in, in medical uh, practice. Um, so, and I think that's really how it it's used in evidence-based education in, in medical context too. Uh, but there is a discussion about evidence-based medicine being, you don't have to follow evidence to the, how do you say that, to the, to the letter, but you have to use it to inform it. So this is actually the same discussion that we, uh, that Ghet just uh, talked about. Um, so um, I think it's a very uh, sort of luring us into this evidence-based teaching because we use this word in, in medical context, uh, but it's not very uh, productive, I would say, in, in educational context. It's, yeah, just like we were saying, because of the complexity, the openness of the, of the, of the teaching. So teaching is uh, has lots of local contingencies which aren't captured in RCTs and evidence. They don't fit every situation. So Marije, in, in the uh, grant proposal for your project, <laughs> uh, we wrote that your project is going to make this uh, small group learning, learning from experience evidence-based. Mm -hmm. And do we have a problem now? <laughs> You, you don't necessarily have to answer that question. We view that as rhetorical, right? So, 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 Mariah, there's there is a, um, another expression that I was reminded of when I saw an email from a colleague mm -hmm. of mine. Um, and so there, there have been um, there's a little bit of popularity right now, I think, in um, uh, books that claim um, that. They're going to teach, they're going to, um, the books are going to inform us about teaching practices that are informed by the neurosciences of learning. Um, to what extent is that teaching practices informed by the neurosciences of learning similarly a problematic phrase? Or is it not a problematic phrase? Uh, well, I would say um, it really connects uh, teaching to what's happening in the head. Um, so it, it sort of um, uses uh, cognitive evidence um, to, um, 
yeah, make an argument for one teacher strategy or another. It, it might uh, teach us something. It might uh, give us some information that would be relevant in some situation. But what we really need to know is what's happening when teaching uh, is uh, when when people teach. And I don't think that's something that you can. Personally, I wouldn't be interested in what happens in the head because that's something that might not even be happening the moment you teach. So what are you measuring when you measure cognitive processes, neuroscientific uh, processes? Um, are you measuring learning? And even if you're measuring learning, are you measuring learning at the, at the right point in time? Uh, people can learn or see the light, uh, like we just discussed at the beginning of this, uh, of this episode way later than uh, the the teaching uh, moment so to me it doesn't really make sense to uh, to do a neuroscientific research um probably because i i see teaching and also learning as an uh interactional process and not not so much as a cognitive process Kurt, do you want to uh add some comments yeah did, a little <laughs> did i pick something that that might um be a little um a burr under the saddle blanket, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> you, you phrase it very nicely. I think you said something like there is a, there is a bit of enthusiasm for this. In, in some circles, people think this is the only thing we should be doing. Um, so one concern I have is, is actually what does the word learning mean here? And I don't think learning exists in a general sense. So when you begin to open up that, what you often see is that learning is defined as, as a process of intelligent adaptation to an environment. The, the learning sciences, they say, we study uh, intelligent adaptive systems. Um, and, yeah, I've written a paper about that where I say, well, what's a good example of an intelligent adaptive system? That's a robot vacuum cleaner. Uh, because these are systems and they adapt to the environment. So the first time they hoover your room, they bump into things. Next time they move around, it's very smooth. Um, so if that is the paradigm for, for learning, also coming out of neuroscience, you can then ask, is that what we want in education? And you can say, um, there is a lot about education that maybe fits this idea of intelligent adaptation. But there is one thing that a robot vacuum cleaner can never do. The robot vacuum cleaner cannot say no. It cannot say, I don't want to clean the office of Adolf Hitler. And there a, a human dimension comes in that is missing in, in this way of, of theorizing. So that for me is, is the biggest concern, that it speaks about particular model of, of human action that actually doesn't reach what is absolutely crucial, that we're not just organisms that can adapt cleverly, but that we can also say no at some point and say this goes too far. Like in, in medical situations where we say this is really silly to continue with this treatment because the patient is suffering from it. So that's that's my strong response to this enthusiasm about mm. the reduction to yeah, neuroscience. I think this is a really interesting discussion because it touch, uh, touches on many of the 
points that we'll be addressing later in the series, uh, some of the articles which are now uh, under review, like uh, what what is evidence? What we need some, we cannot just do anything we feel like in, in, in education. We need a kind of system. We need a kind of direction. But then do we have something uh, outside of us telling us what it is? Do we do we have like a rule book or a guidance? And then the, the response of uh, um, let's, well, there's neuroscience, but there's also the cognitive psychology about let's understand uh, how, uh, let's measure the emotions and the, the learning that occurs uh, within the student. And uh, what I really like about uh, your article is that it, it connects some, to something that uh, I've been thinking about, uh, especially in the context of the book of Matthew Crawford that's called uh, The World Beyond Your Head. So that title already expresses uh, that. And there he talks, he talks a lot about, uh, I guess he calls it in individuation, but uh, it could uh, maybe be translated to subjectification. And he talks about attentional environments and, and the idea of attention and guiding attention uh, seems very relevant there. And uh, so in this uh, podcast, we have a longstanding uh, tradition that I quote Hannah Arendt at least one time in every episode. <laughs> so I just read this. I didn't notice when I read it on Twitter. She writes that the mere reading of a book requires some degree of isolation, of being protected against the presence of others, which, of course, Rela uh, relates to what you write in uh, the article about reducing openness and the interference of, of the outside by putting students in classrooms. So I wonder if, if, if either of you, if you could, because uh, for me, it's an open question. I'm thinking about is education about attention? Like, like Gert, you said before, you don't uh, tell your stu students that they must learn, but what if you would tell them, okay, I don't ask you to learn, I ask you to study, because the word the word study comes from paying attention to something, I think. Yeah. Um, so I would say, and I have said, that I, I think uh, attention is a much better way to think about what we do in education. Uh, and studying is a good word for that, um, because that is about, yeah, focusing attention, paying attention. Um, and I think what I do with my own students is, is much more giving them tasks and challenging them to, to pay attention. Um, and I, I leave it sometimes just to them to see what they do with that. So not even to say you have to learn something from it. Just to stay with the situation can already be a really important educational experience to stay with something that you don't understand and probably will never understand, like the mystery of life and death. Uh, we have no real understanding of what goes on there. To, to stay with that and to pay attention to that is, yeah, quite something. So, Hert, when you were talking about that, of, of sitting with something, staying with something, um, it struck me as one of the important messages of most meditation practices. And, and I thought, well, isn't that what I'm trying to do with my faculty in faculty development is just sit with something. You don't need the answer today. You don't need the answer tomorrow. Um, but but sit with it, reflect on it, 
um, pay attention yeah. to it. Yeah. So again, coming back to where, where you started by saying, I want my students to develop an awareness of themselves as teachers. Well, that that's for me precisely this process, because there is a difference between um, yeah, experiencing something or seeing something or or thinking that you see something. So to to be aware of something rather than that you already think that you know it. That's part of the educational process as well, to to say, oh, I think it's this. And you say, no, it's not that. We'll take that away. We'll take that away. How close can you then get to that? Um, for me, that's quite educational. And here is a lovely author. It's a German author who says, education is the work of the hand. So he says, mm -hmm. it all starts with the, the work of the finger, where we say to our students, well, pay attention to that. Or you're, as I said, you're looking to the left, let's for a moment look to the right. And all these are processes of attention formation. Sometimes we say to our students, and I really hope that you all take this and this from it. And sometimes we, we just say, I really hope that you stay with that. But you have to take from it what you will take from it. That's the, the spectrum. If you If you need to teach people how to, what is it, fly a, a Boeing triple seven, it has to be pretty precise in terms of your outcomes. But all good professionals at the end of the day, yeah, have to be prepared for these messy, unpredictable, never completely fitting real life situations. We're getting very philosophical here. <laughs> but again, that's the point. Yeah. So we've talked about the implications um, of your argument for us as health professional educator, teachers, practitioners. Um, I want to now consider the implications of your argument for the research that we do. What are the elements of an educational ecology that I should be or might be um, studying in faculty development in the teaching of teachers? I would partly go back to these these three dimensions of, of educational systems to to study what do we do with with openness and closeness and these are subtle processes so we cannot even say this is here's where we put the limits because that's constantly moving so that requires quite nuanced study. The same with the whole process of, of meaning-making that goes on, the semiosis, uh, because that's part of the dynamics of what yeah, constitutes a particular educational ecology. And then the recursivity, how do people think? How do they make judgment about what they do next? What does a student do in, in coming up with a question they ask the tutor, the question they not dare to ask the tutor? So when you begin to get a, a sense of, of all that, which is very complex, then I think you begin to, to understand what makes a particular session tick and, and other sessions do not really tick. And that, I think, ultimately gives much more thoughtfulness to what, what teachers can do than just to say, here are the five things with, with the highest uh, effect sign. Um, so what I do is I do interactional research. So I uh, focus on uh, particular 
um, interactional dilemmas that teachers have in facilita facilitating collaborative reflection between general practitioners in training. And so for example, they may struggle with uh, jumping in. So when do I take a turn? When do I uh, bring in my expertise? Or do I just leave the process be and see what happens? So, and these, I, I have several of these dilemmas, which I try to pinpoint in interaction. So where I see people jumping in, for example, teachers um, uh, taking, contributing to a discussion, but also moments where they, similar moments where they don't. So, and I try to compare these and see, see what happens. Really very descriptive. And then I take some of these uh, very typical or telling examples to um, teachers and I show them just line by line what happens um, without saying, well, this is a good way of dealing with the situation or this is a way that isn't very productive. I just show them what happens and that's already enough to get some discussion going and to have them think about, okay, what do I, what would I want to do? So I just, I just play the situation as it were and stop it after every new person starts a turn. And I can ask them, uh, so what would you do? Um, what would someone else do? Uh, and we can discuss their strategies. So it's sort of is based on what really happened. It's a very good example of, of you do it in a thorough way. So very little steps, attention to detail, but also thoughtful because you're trying to do justice to what's really happening yeah. rather than to sort of put a model over it and say we can abstract from it. And if you do that, then there is a 74% chance that the student will respond in that way. Then you're no longer in the situation. Yeah. And in my experience, that's what teachers start uh, asking me at the start of these sessions. So what do we need to do? What works and what doesn't work? And I always have to disappoint them because I just can't say what works and what doesn't work, but still they get some um, uh, ideas to think about it, to use in their own practice. So, so that's very interesting. What, what you're doing is really very grounded in the participants lived mm -hmm. experience. But if you call this experience based something or the other, then um, that would really go counter to the current trend in in medical research, mm -hmm. which, which is we don't practice experience-based medicine. And yet experience is really crucial when it comes to how we make choices in medical practice. So perhaps one of the dimensions of an educational ecology is the use of educational judgment mm -hmm. on the part of the teacher. Yes. And there I would say, and then I'll stop, uh, judgment is first of all a matter of perception, an ability to see a situation as this or that, or in terms of this or that. And that goes back again to attention. How can you, yeah, how can you read the situation in terms of its educational potential, for example? I think that's a great place to end the discussion because um, uh, some of the topics that we discussed, they will be uh, explored in much more depth in the rest of the series. So uh, we have uh, an installment about evidence-based coming up. What What is evidence and how do you relate that to uh, evidence from your own experience? 
we have uh, an issue about language. Uh, you even said that that uh, education is uh, mainly semiotic or linguistic, which is a, a whole interesting topic to explore in itself. And we're going to speak about the role of what the authors call aesthetic experience. So mm. that's really uh, uh, also in, in medical practice, uh, uh, Janet, what is the role of your own more intuitive understanding of the situation in in relation to what we know from statistics and, and uh, uh, research, which is obviously very important as well. So uh, thank you, Janet. Thank you, Marije. And thank you, Gert. And uh, thank you for listening. And next time I'll have some more questions for you.